Bibles, I'll invite you to take a turn to Luke chapter 12. Our last sermon in the Gospel of Luke for this calendar year. Today we'll be preaching for us next Sunday, and then the Sunday after that is Advent, where we'll be in the book of Revelation. It's the last time in Luke's Gospel for this calendar year. Somebody asked me, uh, when are we going to finish Luke? And I said, never. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it's been a good study so far. Today we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 34 in Luke chapter 12. We have here in the Bible, so you can follow along as we read from the scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 22. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not great like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little Father, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, for no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Give it to us for our good. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Father, help us now. To hear your word with hearts of faith, help us, God, to be convicted where we ought to be convicted. Help us to be encouraged where we ought to be encouraged. Corrected where we need it, Father. Strengthen where we are weak. God, we pray for our the eyes of our hearts to be illuminated. We pray for our minds to be sharp now, to think along with Jesus, and to consider what it is that he's calling us to believe and how he's calling us to live. I pray that you keep me, Father, from error. I pray that the words of the sermon will be faithful and true to the words of the text. I pray, Father, that you would grant all of us discernment in the midst of uh, what is surely, Father, a twisted and evil generation. We pray that we have the grace to shine like stars as you call us to do so for the glory of Christ and pray in his name. Amen. I think it's safe to say that 21st century culture values few things more than security. If you look around at our hyper-connected world, you'll see the quest for security playing out in numerous and surprising ways. We have more tools than ever to create financial security, more investment tools, more banking access, more markets to create wealth. We have a greater focus on relational security, more counseling, more personal wellness, more ways to understand your own personality so that you can better relate to other people. We have even a large and growing market for information security, LifeLock, 
identity guard, identity force, black packages in the cloud, as they say, and so we've even invented ways to keep our information secure. Those are just a few examples, but I think it's enough to make my point of all the values that we prize in our world. Security in various forms is near the top. Here's the surprising thing, though. Our efforts at securing our lives don't seem to be paying off, not the least. People today report much higher levels of anxiety than in previous decades. Chronic stress is now classified as a leading cause of death, as well as a leading cause of other things that lead to death. Our constant state of connection to the rest of the world is not making us more informed, it's making us more worried about things that we actually can't control. So you see the confusion that is gripping our culture. On the one hand, we've got more tools than ever designed to secure our lives, but on the other hand, we've never felt less secure. Ours is an anxious age. It's an anxious age. We can back up our digital data, but we can't seem to slow down our own hearts. That's the experience of many people. It's the experience of many of us as we live in this this world. So where do we turn as people who are in the midst of this anxious age? Where can we find the security that we need but without the resulting worry that grips so much of life in the modern world? Where do we go? Well, thankfully, friends, we can turn to the scriptures. Specifically, this passage here in Luke chapter 12, where we find Jesus speaking precisely about these issues with his disciples. Written nearly 2,000 years ago, this passage is tailor-made for our anxious age. And here's why, friends. With great wisdom, Jesus reminds us that true security comes not from our circumstances, but from our view of God. That's the thesis of the sermon here. True security comes not from our circumstances, but from our view of God. This is really the key takeaway of the entire text. Our innate desire for security is not wrong. It's not wrong to want your life to be secure. That's a reflection of your status as a creature. You're made to be dependent on something else. And that means our quest for security is telling us we were made for God. But that's exactly where we often lose our way. We tend to think of security in terms of circumstances. But in reality, security has little to do with what you have. And security has little to do with what you can prevent. Security, properly defined in the Bible, flows from your view of God. It's a theological reality. And that's what Jesus is giving his disciples in this passage. He's giving them a framework, so to speak, for for building a secure life. It's his life lock, according to Jesus. But it's a different kind of security. It's not rooted in things. It's not rooted in accident prevention. But it's rooted in a certain understanding of God that's applied to everyday life. And in that sense, friends, there's hardly a more fitting passage for life in an anxious age. Before we look at how Jesus builds this framework, we we should briefly note where this text comes in the course of Luke's gospel. Today's passage is the outworking of where we ended last week. So just look back at verse 21 that we ended with last week, where Jesus warned us 
against the folly of laying up treasure on earth, but not being rich towards God. You were meant to then ask the question, how do I become rich towards God? Today's passage is the answer to that. We pick up right there at the end of verse 21, and Jesus is going to show us how to be rich towards God, which is the same way as saying, Jesus is going to show us that security is found not in stuff, but in the Lord. So in terms of an outline, we're going to focus on three exhortations from Jesus. There's three commands, which when we take them together, they create this anchor for our souls in the midst of an anxious age. So three exhortations from Jesus that help us to be secure in God. The first exhortation is foundational. It comes in verses 22 to 28. Jesus tells us to rest in the Father's character. Rest in the Father's character. Jesus begins with a very straightforward command, verse 22. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. So by the way, Jesus gives this clear command. I wish that there was some profound insight that I could unveil to you as what this is about, but it's pretty straightforward. Don't worry about what you're going to eat today. Don't worry about where you're going to get your clothes. The idea is to not allow these things to dominate your life. Don't spend all of your time fretting about the basic stuff. In fact, Jesus solidifies the command with an equally clear reason. Look at verse 23. Why should you not worry? Because life is more than food. The body, your, the body is more than clothing. So Jesus says if you spend all your time worrying about food and clothing, then you miss out on life. You miss out on the grand purpose of existence. Life is more than food and clothing. It's pretty straightforward from the Lord. But if we're honest, you can probably anticipate the objection that many of Jesus' disciples had at this point. And that's because it's the same objection that some of you probably have right now. Yes, life is more than food and clothing, but life is not less than those things, right? You have to have food to live. Without clothing, you'll die from exposure. So you can imagine the, the disciples, they're listening to Jesus. They're, they're thinking, sure, yeah, we get it. Jesus' life is more than food, but it's not less than that. I'm hungry. I don't want to die. So how in the world, this, this is what I'm getting at, how in the world is it to follow Jesus' command? Verse 22 is very clear. Don't worry about the basic stuff of life. But then realistically, how can Jesus expect us to do that? How can you live without worrying about the stuff that makes living possible? Well, notice where Jesus goes. Verses 24 to 28, he goes to the character of God. He goes to the character of God. This is the power of Jesus' teaching. Considering the scope of his command in verse 22, Jesus knows that the only thing big enough to free us from anxiety is God. It's the character of God that provides the security we need for life. So Jesus gives a series of illustrations, verses 24 to 28, and each illustration is designed to focus the disciples' attention on who God is and who they are in relationship to God. So notice how Jesus does this. Look at the different aspects of God's character that Jesus highlights and how these truths relate to the disciples. First of all, Jesus points the disciples to God's care. Look at verse 24. 
Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Birds are a small part of God's creation, and yet they don't worry about daily provision. In fact, birds have no ability to build up the secure lifestyle that so many of us are chasing. You won't find birds building bigger barns. You won't find birds spreading over their investment portfolios. And that's Jesus' point. Despite their small position, God cares for them. He provides what they need. And it all comes to a head there in that powerful rhetorical question of how much more value are you than the birds? Friends, you don't need an advanced degree in the Bible to know the answer to that question. Much more value. You're of much more value than the birds. And the proof is right there before your eyes. That's the brilliance of Jesus' point here. Every time you look out your living room window, you see a cardinal or a robin feeding in the yard. You're witnessing a reminder from God to you that he will give you what you need. If God feeds the ravens, then he will feed you. He cares. Next, Jesus points the disciples to God's sovereignty. Look at verses 25 and 26. Notice how Jesus draws this out. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Jesus uses an absurdity to help us think clearly. It's absurd to think that by worrying, you can extend your life. Like, actually, you probably don't extend your life by worrying, maybe it's shorter. Right? So it's absurd to think that you can add a single hour to your life. Why is that? Because our days are not our responsibility. The number of our days is not our responsibility. Who, who establishes the number of your days? God does. And because God is sovereign, we won't live one day too short or one day too long. So if you can't extend your life by even one hour, then why would you worry about not having today's provisions? To put it a different way, if you can't upend the sovereignty of God over your life, then why would you fret that un some unforeseen circumstance would keep God from giving you what you need? would never happen. Your days are established. So it's the application of the sovereignty of God, which is this massive theological truth, to the everyday stuff of life. Finally, Jesus points the disciples to God's provision, his care, his sovereignty, and then his provision. Again, it's an illustration from nature, this time focusing on flowers. Look at verses 27 and 28. Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Flowers, according to Jesus, are arrayed in glory. More glory than the most resplendent king in history, more than Solomon himself. And yet, at the end of the day, flowers are nothing but grass. They're alive today, and tomorrow they're fuel for the fire. So if God is so committed to clothing even flowers in such resplendent glory, how much more will he clothe his children in what they need for life? Again, notice how Jesus is putting the truth right in front of your face in everyday life. That flower that grows up in your front yard is not just a flower. It's a daily reminder that God will provide what you need. These are not abstract things. It's 
very clear from the Lord, right out there in the open where you can see it. God's care, God's sovereignty, God's provision. How in the world did Jesus' disciples live without worry? Only by anchoring their hearts in the character of God. Only by anchoring their hearts in the character of God. This is incredibly important, friends, for living the Christian life. So I just want to linger on this for a moment. Think about this simple but powerful strategy that Jesus is employing in these verses. What is Jesus doing here? He's taking truths about God, and then he's using those truths as the lens through which we see the world. He's taking truths about God, and he's using those truths as the lens through which we think about our circumstances. That's the opposite of what we normally do. We normally take circumstances and view them as the lens through which we try to understand God. And Jesus says, no, flip it around. Take these truths about God and look through them at life in the everyday world. That's what Jesus is doing. He's looking at the everyday stuff of life, birds and flowers and the passage of time. And then Jesus is saying, think about what this means. Think about what this means about God and your relationship to him. In fact, this is, a, this is a simple observation, but notice that word consider in verses 24 and 27. Jesus says, consider these things. The idea is to look at something in a reflective way, to think about it, to turn it over in your mind, and to consider how it relates to life. Friends, that's the doing of theology. That, that's the application of truth to life. In other words, Jesus is reminding us here that trusting God doesn't happen by accident. Right? Like turning away from an anxious heart is not something that you stumble into. It's something that you cultivate. Consider it, Jesus says. Think about who God is. Think about your life. And then put the two of them together and consider it. This kind of trust in the Lord, it doesn't happen by accident. It's cultivated. It's built up. As we see the world through the lens of what God says about himself. Think about how different this is from the way we typically approach the Christian life. We tend to read verses like verse 22, where Jesus says, don't be anxious. And we read that verse, and we reduce it to little more than a bare prohibition. Just stop worrying. Quit it. Quit being anxious. Just stop doing that. That's how we tend to read those verses. But that's not at all how Jesus approaches it. Jesus doesn't simply say, stop doing that. He gives the command, but then he also gives the truth that enables you to obey the command. And what's more, he does so in a way that fits with the world in which we live. Friends, these illustrations are so simple, a child can understand them. They're not abstract. It's not obtuse. It's simply the character of God laid over everyday life for the purpose of faith. That's the doing of theology. That's all that that means. Or to say it another way, that's walking by faith. That's walking by faith. This is why Jesus includes the rebuke in verse 28 when he says, Oh, you of little faith. He's calling the disciples to pursue what they're lacking, which is trust in the character of God. All of that to say, the point that I'm trying to get you to see here is that this is how faith takes root 
and is worked out in the Christian life. It's cultivated. This is how we escape the grip of our anxious age and live with confidence by believers, by cultivating such confidence. It's only by considering God's character, embracing who He is, and then laying that truth over our lives so that faith takes root. Friends, the hard reality is that oftentimes our faith is too weak because we're trying to understand the world without any reference to God. Well, of course you're going to feel overwhelmed. The world is an overwhelming place. That's why we need to consider, as Jesus says, who God is, and then apply that to life so that faith takes root. I've said it before, and I want to just encourage you again at this point. Time spent knowing God is never wasted. One of the things we ought to take away here, time spent knowing God is never wasted. The character of God is the seedbed of faith in the Christian's life. So aim to know God. His character, His purposes, His promises, and His ways. Aim to know Him through His Word. That time spent knowing God is never wasted. And on the contrary, it's the seedbed of faith that helps us rest secure in God's character. That's the first exhortation. We have to rest in the Father's character. The second exhortation continues with a similar theme. It comes in verses 29 and 32. Jesus commands his disciples, pursue the kingdom's priorities. How do we find security in this world? Pursue the kingdom's priorities. Jesus repeats the commands against worry in verse 29. Look there, he repeats it. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. As in verse 22, Jesus is not saying these things are unimportant. Rather, he's calling us to not be overly focused on such things. Don't let them dominate your life. Don't be frantic in chasing all the stuff that the world chases. So verse 29 is very similar to verse 22. And verse 30 is then very similar to the illustrations that Jesus just gave a moment ago. Look at verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. A worldly heart is anxious for earthly things. So Jesus is saying an anxious life demonstrates a worldly perspective. But the disciple's heart is confident in the character of God. Don't be like those who don't know the Lord. Rest secure in your Father's care. That's verse 30. The truth of who God is makes all the difference in how you live. But then starting in verse 31, Jesus gives us the alternative to being anxious. If we're not supposed to worry about daily provision, then what should we spend our energy doing? Jesus tells us, verse 31. Instead, instead of that worrying approach to life, instead, seek the kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So that's the disciples' calling, to seek after the kingdom of God, to purposefully pursue priorities of Jesus' kingdom. When you do that, you'll find that the Father, consistent with His faithful character, gives you what you need. So what exactly does it look like to pursue the kingdom? How, how do we, as followers of Christ, carry out that kind of pursuit? Well, there's a lot that we can say on that, so I just want to give a few, maybe thumbnail points here on what it means to pursue the kingdom of God so that we can follow Jesus faithfully here. First of all, we should remember that the 
is the redemptive rule of Jesus Christ over all of the earth. That's what the kingdom of God is in the gospel. It's the redemptive rule of Christ over all of the earth. This rule begins in the hearts of Jesus' people as they come to embrace him by faith and extends through the spread of the gospel. One day this kingdom will be finally and fully realized in the new creation as God's king, Jesus Christ, reigns over a renewed world. But for now, this kingdom is primarily a spiritual reality that comes about through the gospel of Christ in the lives of those who trust him. That's what the kingdom is. It's the redemptive rule of reign of Christ in the hearts of his people spreading out across the globe. And that helps us understand, most importantly, what it means to pursue the kingdom. To pursue the kingdom is to live out the lordship, the rule of Christ in everyday life. It's to live every day under the authority of Jesus, cherishing what Christ calls good, upholding what Christ calls to be true, pursuing what Christ says has value, uh, has value and displaying joyful submission to the lordship of Jesus. That's what it means for you as a disciple of Christ to pursue the kingdom. You are working each day by faith to live more under the lordship of Jesus. Friends, this is why this is why growing in godliness, serving the church, and loving your brothers and sisters in the faith are such important endeavors. It is why we put uh, a note of emphasis on these things nearly every Lord's Day. Growing in godliness, serving the church, and loving your brothers and sisters in the faith. Those are important endeavors because that's how the kingdom of God is seen on the earth. That's how the lordship of Christ is made visible out for the world to see. As we grow each day in living more under the lordship of Christ. In other words, friends, your daily life as a Christian is about so much more than you. It's about God's kingdom in Christ being made visible on this earth. That's why it matters that we grow in godliness. Because it's about more than just our lives. It's about the kingdom of God being made visible on the earth. In fact, one of the reasons why so many professing Christians find the Christian life to be anemic and irrelevant and boring is because their perspective is too small. They're thinking of the Christian life mainly in terms of themselves, rather than thinking in terms of God and what God is doing in the church and in the world. And friends, if you think the Christian life is primarily about you, then pretty quickly you're going to conclude that it's anemic and irrelevant and more. Because it's not just about you. It's about what God is doing through Christ for all the world to see. And perhaps that's a correction that... Some of us need to hear this morning, perhaps we've lost sight of the bigger vision for living each day as a Christian. The Christian life is not primarily about you and me. It's the divine calling to display the Lordship of Christ to the world through a life of obedience to God and commitment to the church and service to others. So if you want to invigorate your life as a Christian, perhaps begin by lifting your gaze up from yourself to see God's perspective on living as a follower of Christ. 
That's what it means to pursue the kingdom. It means to pursue Christ's lordship in your life because that's how Jesus' authority is made visible. Along with Christ's lordship in our lives, the, the other aspect of pursuing the kingdom involves seeing Christ's rule spread to those who do not yet know him. That's the other aspect of pursuing the kingdom. It's to proclaim the gospel, to evangelize the lost, to engage the world with the reality that all things are from Christ and through Christ and for Christ. It's to call sinners to repentance and faith through the gospel of the kingdom. Friends, do you think that that outward-looking perspective is true of our church? Do you think that outward-looking perspective is true of your life? Is it true of my life? Beginning in our own homes and then working outward through the different spheres of life, are we people who are quick to speak of Christ and of His redemptive work? Do we pray for open doors to speak of the Lord Jesus regularly? Do we pray for the boldness to take those opportunities? Friends, are we equipped enough with the truth of the gospel so that we could engage in this kind of ministry to pursue the kingdom in this kind of way? Are you clear enough on the gospel in your mind that if you were able to start a conversation with another person that you would know how you want to talk about the truths of the Lord? Are we an outward-looking place? If not, then let's reach out to one another, reach out to a pastor, and let's pray for God to make us an outward-looking kingdom-pursuing church. Look, this is what Jesus is telling us to do. Don't worry about all the stuff of everyday life when we give that to you. Seek the kingdom. What does that mean? Live a godly life and proclaim the gospel. This is part of how we anchor our souls in Christ by living each day, not in the grip of anxiety over circumstances, but in the confidence that our lives are in God's hands so I can use what time God has given me to love Him and love others by living for the truth. That's what it means to be a kingdom-pursuing church. These are big things. I, I, I take it. These are big pursuits. To think of daily life as the expression of Christ's lordship. These are big pursuits. I'm convicted by studying this week and preparing to preach. Convicted primarily because this is often not how I live. So these are big pursuits. You might feel a bit crushed by them at this point. So to encourage us in these things, notice what Jesus says in verse 32. This is the kindness of Christ. It's a sweet promise from his disciples. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Again, that's the kindness of God. What Jesus tells us to pursue, the Father is eager to give to us. Jesus says, pursue the kingdom, and don't be afraid. The Father is eager to give you the kingdom. It's such a sweet, sweet promise. The Father's delight is to give us the kingdom and to do so with joy. That phrase, the good pleasure of God, is so rich. We don't have to twist the Father's arm to help us as we pursue the kingdom of God. It's just the opposite. The Father is eager to help his children. He delights to pour into his children 
the very thing that he calls them to seek. Pursue the kingdom and then be encouraged that I'm ready to give it to you. What a kind God we serve. And what a blessing it is to pursue his kingdom. And all of it happens under the watchful care of Jesus. You see that phrase, this little flock? It's encouraging. The church is the little flock of the Lord, and he is our good shepherd, so we can take heart. We can take heart when the pursuit of Christ and his kingdom seems like nothing but an uphill climb. We can remember that the Father delights to answer those who seek him. And so we come to the final exhortation of the passage, the, the final instruction on how to find our security in God. We've considered the call to rest in the Father's care. We just looked at the call to pursue the kingdom's priorities. Finally, verses 33 and 34, Jesus calls us to invest in heavenly treasure. Invest in heavenly treasure. Verse 33 makes it clear that the, the, the disciples' security is not found in things of this world, but in the unshakable realities of heaven. Notice Jesus' command, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old, and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, the logic of that command flows entirely from what Jesus just said in verse 32. Since the Father promises to give his children the kingdom, we can, in response, give generously to others in this world. This is key, friends. This kind of generosity, verse 33, this kind of generosity is the overflow of a heart that is rich toward God. Because we know the Father will give us the kingdom, we can give away whatever we have on this earth, knowing that we have a treasure in heaven. That's what Jesus means when he talks about money bags that do not grow old. He's talking about treasure in heaven that is secure beyond any threat. Since nothing can threaten my greatest treasure, I don't have to fear the loss of earthly things. I can give generously without worry. I can experience freedom from the grip of materialism. All because I know that as a Christian, I have a greater and more enduring treasure in Christ. Because the treasure in heaven is so great and no one can take it, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll just give you everything. You may have heard someone say before that a Christian can be so heavenly minded that he's of no earthly good. Have you ever heard that first day? A person is so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. Whenever you hear someone say that to you, you can rest assured that they don't understand Jesus. Because Jesus shows us here how wrong that cliche is. A Christian does the greatest earthly good when he's the most heavenly minded. Right? You want to love your neighbor as yourself? Then store up treasure in heaven. And you won't withhold anything from your neighbor. When I invest all of my hope in things above, then I am free from holding on to things below. I don't have to worry. To say it another way, an investment in heavenly treasure produces an earthly return. Generosity, love for neighbor, and a commitment to glorifying Christ with everything that I have. You want to do the most earthly good? Then be the most heavenly minded that you can be. And so Jesus sums it up in verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
If you've gone to Midtown for any length of time, you've heard me say, you live for what you treasure. And that's true. But it's also true that you are shaped by what you treasure. You don't just live for it, you're shaped by it. So, just this is the hard point of the text. This is the pointy part that brings conviction, at least it does for me. When our lives are marked by anxious worry over the things of this world, that often reveals that we have our treasure in the wrong places. When our lives are marked by anxious worry over the things of this world, it very likely means that our treasure is in the wrong place. But when we seek the things above, where Christ is, we find freedom in this life to live for Christ and for the good of others. Friends, this is why Jesus spends so many verses on anxiety and worry. He's not merely advocating for better mental habits that produce a higher quality of life. And friends, it's much more important than that. Jesus is aiming to free us from the love of this world so that we are able to love God and others more than ourselves. Secure in God, we're free to live for Christ. That's what Jesus is doing. But brothers and sisters, it begins with what we treasure. That's where it starts. It begins with what we treasure. In fact, this is why our church's mission statement begins where it does, with treasuring God's glory in Christ. You live for what you treasure, and what you treasure shapes how you live. The great problem with an anxious, fretful heart is that it causes us to live for the things of this world. Have you ever noticed that when you worry about something, you spend more time on it, not less? You don't get any greater freedom, you get more in its grip. And then gripped with fear that we will not have enough, we spend most of our days living for things that cannot provide us the security that we're seeking, and even the security that we need. But in His grace, God provides freedom. By resting in the Father's character, we can live free from the anxious fear of not having what we need. By pursuing God's kingdom, we can escape the insatiable quest for more stuff. And by investing all that we have in heavenly treasure, we're free to do the most good. To live for the glory of God, to love our neighbor for ourselves. But all of it begins with what we're treasuring in our lives. And so if your life is riddled with fretful, anxious fear, then ask God, by His grace, to lift your gaze up from this world and to fix it on Him, the great treasure of our souls. Ask the Lord by His Spirit, through His Word, to open your eyes to see how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like so many other things, friends, the presence of fear and anxiety and worry is telling us something about our view of God. It's telling us something about our view of God. The security we seek cannot be found in earthly things. It can only be found in God the Father who has given us His Son and sealed us with His Spirit so that we might live for, so that we might live for Him. And so a fitting way to end is to say that our prayers for God to enrich our hearts in Him, to make us rich with Him, so that the result will be that our lives overflow with glad-hearted confidence that He is our treasure, and we're now free to live for the glory of His name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us. These are things that are beyond 
our ability, God, to pray for your help. We pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to have our treasure be rooted very firmly in who you are and in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we would have that confidence sealed, Father, by the work of the Holy Spirit, and we would be able uh, to live holy for you. Father, help us to invest all that we have in things above so that we might be the most free to do good here below. We pray for your help, Father. We pray for your grace in our lives and our